0: to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview that I guarantee you will never hear in the mainstream media. You know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. And if you haven't tried Sanitas Radio yet, I highly recommend that you do. Right on our website, VeritasRadio.com, you should see our latest Sanitas interview, or go to SanitasRadio.com. This week, we featured Kathy Scogna, Junk DNA, Unlocking the Hidden Secrets of Your DNA. Again, Sanitas is doing for your full potential as a human what Veritas is doing for the truth. So check it out at SanitasRadio.com. During the 75 years that have now passed since the end of the grand history-altering event known as World War II, only a single narrative of the great conflict has been heard. It is a story which the architects of the New World Order have implanted, no, pounded into the minds of three subsequent generations. Every medium of mass indoctrination has been harnessed to the task of training the obedient masses as to what the proper view of this event should be. Academia, news media, public education, book publishing, TV documentaries, Hollywood films, clergymen, And politicians of every stripe all sing the same song. And to discuss the bad war that truth never taught about World War II, tonight's special guest is Mike King, right now on Veritas. Mike King is a private investigative journalist and researcher based in New York City. A 1987 graduate of Rutgers University, King's subsequent 30-year career in marketing and advertising has equipped him with a unique perspective when it comes to understanding how, quote-unquote, public opinion is indeed scientifically manufactured. King is also the author of The War Against Putin, What the Government Media Complex Isn't Telling You About Russia. King's other interests include the animal kingdom, philosophy, chess, cooking, literature, and history with emphasis on events of the late 19th through the 20th centuries. And for a more comprehensive bio, visit our website. It's linked there. And if you want to learn more about Mike King and his work and his new book, The Bad War, visit tomatobubble.com. And directly from Patterson, New Jersey, I would like to welcome Mike King back to Veritas. Hello, Mike, and welcome back.
1: Hey, Bells, it's good to be back with you uh, again. Uh, We we spoke about the war against Putin last time, and I'm uh, excited to tell you all about the bad war.
0: Absolutely. And speaking of Putin, I'm glad to hear that there's at least a temporary ceasefire in Ukraine right now. Let's see what happens with that. But that's for the the other show. This is a very important interview we have today because tomorrow, February the 13th, is the anniversary, the 70th anniversary of Dresden. Your new book is The Bad War, The Truth Never Taught about World War II. Now, why is it that here in this part of the world, we know World War II as the good war? Why is that, Mike?
1: Well, in essence, it is the good war. It depends on your perspective Uh, for that, what I call the PRC, the predatory ruling class, uh, which was very nearly overthrown uh, by Hitler in Germany during World War II. Uh, The results of that war and the destruction of Germany uh, was good uh, for them. So that's the joke. Uh, But for anyone with a sense of decency and morality and any kind of human compassion, there was nothing good about this war. It was uh, evil through and through. And, and And the lie continues for 70 years.
0: And, Mike, obviously, to deliver a truth or a lie, you need to have a delivery mechanism. In this case the media or the propaganda machine critical for shaping public opinion? When did the press begin to be dominated in Europe and the U.S., and by whom?
1: Well, by the usual suspects, members of a certain tribe. And I go into that in the book because it's critical, because we could not have been driven into two world wars against Germany without the influence uh, of the Zionist press. Uh, but the, the first major acquisition uh, was in the 1870s when Paul Reuters established uh, uh, Reuters International Press uh, Agency. And his birth name is uh, uh, Burrell Israel, uh, something like that. Uh, so it, it began with the establishment of Reuters. And then you have the, the Zionist family, the Sulzberger Oaks family, acquired the New York Times in 1896. Uh, and then later on, you had the Meyer family acquired the Washington Post, William Paley of CBS Radio, Robert Sarnoff, NBC Radio. So by the time we arrive at the eve of World War II, uh, the tribe has got the entire uh, major media already on lockdown. And that is critical then. And it remains the case today. Uh, and that's why the you know the, the lie is able to be perpetuated
0: and why is it that when you tell people of this truth including the truth about the federal reserve that some people may think it's not related but it's very related to this and you tell them what the truth about behind the federal reserve and who's behind it they look at you as if you're from another planet why is that
1: well i mean it is a, a big psychological component uh, to this it's a constant uh, conditioning um you know one of the thing a conspirator Knows to do in order to get away with this crime is to uh, make you believe that there was no crime. So, uh, but this is a psychological conditioning. The moment you begin to talk about these matters, uh, not only does the mind shut down, but they begin to view you as one of those people that they were warned about you know, those horrible extremists, uh, anti Semites, Nazis, so on. So, we're, we're up against Pavlovian conditioning which is the main barrier, even more so than the intellectual hurdles that we have to overcome in telling the truth.
0: And since when, well, let me just preface this question by thinking, if you have a certain group that is able to escalate government levels, and then you have a group that has the media, the propaganda machine, and we'll talk about Edward Bernays and Bernard Baruch in a few minutes, but you have the financiers. Let's begin with the Rothschilds. Since when have the Rothschilds been financing wars?
1: Oh, I, I mean, you, you go back to really the Napoleonic Wars, the wars against Napoleon, uh, that were already immensely wealthy by that time, but that is really when they consolidated, uh, they begin to consolidate their political power and expand their their, their wealth. Uh, they financed the war against Napoleon, who was uh, anti-usury. He was anti. He was against this lending of money at interest. Uh, so his monetary system had to be uh, destroyed early on, and the vehicle for doing that, as always, was England. And then later on, as we get to the twentieth century, you know that baton of being the main hitman of the new world order uh, passed on to America. Uh, so, we're, you know, we're going back a couple centuries with this, uh, pretty much to the time of the French Revolution. And, and uh, I mean, that family is still very much in business and at the heart of world affairs.
0: Do you think that the the British royalty, it's just a facade, but the ones who really own Britain, perhaps most of the world's assets, are the Rothschilds and some of the other families?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, that's even been acknowledged in the so-called mainstream press, that the Rothschild family is the wealthiest family in history. Uh, And it was sometime during the 19th century where they became the true masters of of Britain. And, you know, the British and the American elite, uh, you know, now pretty much, I mean, they're in league with them, but playing a supporting role uh, only. And it's not just the Rothschilds at this point. The network has uh, since expanded, um, but it is a mafia. It is a global uh, mafia, which at its inner inner core uh, is globalist, Zionist, Jewish, what, what have you, at its inner core. Uh, but there's mem- members, many uh, uh, different nationalities who uh, are part of this.
0: So people may say, looking at their version of history or the history that we have been provided— and they probably read that the Jewish population of the world has been persecuted for millennia. And some may say, well, what's wrong about finding a piece of land somewhere around the world? It could have been Uganda, which they declined, but they actually went after Palestine. Now, I'm mentioning a few players on the real history in chronological order so that people can get an idea if they haven't gotten it yet. But who was Theodore Herzl, and how was he instrumental in the plot to steal Palestine from the Arabs? And yes, it was ninety to ninety percent, ninety to ninety-five percent Arab, and it was controlled by the Ottoman Turks. What changed there?
1: Well, I mean that's interesting. I mean Herzl was the, um, at least as a front man, the founding father of the Zionist movement in the late 1900s, uh, and at this time there were just people meeting in places like Switzerland. With this crazy idea of getting a strip of land smack dab in the middle of the Ottoman Empire, uh, which you know is impossible. I mean, the, the Jews did not have any kind of army to, to go in and do that. And the Ottomans cer- certainly weren't about to give it away. Um, but they had in mind already, and Herzl himself uh, wrote this in the 1890s, uh, that in, in the future, uh, a world body will give Palestine uh, to us. And uh, he predicted that the day would come where he would be recognized as the uh, as the father of Israel. Uh, so this is a big part. This is a big element uh, going into World War One against the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Uh, so that was one of the objectives is to take that strip of land and then begin the process of uh, uh, Jewish immigration to Palestine, which, as you said, was almost exclusively Arab uh, at that time, uh, but that's interesting. How did they know that there would be a future world body, um, unless they were controlling uh, events? And indeed, I go into this in the book that uh, you know, World War One didn't just materialize out of nowhere. There were many uh, machinations and maneuvers taking place in the late eighteen, uh, um, the late eighteen hundreds. That ultimately culminated with World War One, which in essence was the first uh, half of um, one big war, World War II being the second half. In many ways, it's the same war.
0: Let me revisit the world body in a moment. But thinking of the Ottoman Turks, they were not going to give it away that easily. But the bankers tried by forgiving some of their debt. Didn't they try to forgive some of their debt in exchange for Palestine?
1: Uh, yes, initially they tried to buy their way in, and the uh, the Ottoman Turks did allow <clears throat> what was known as the uh, the Alaya movement, which was very limited amount of uh, immigrants going in there, and, and and farming. But as far as to give away the, the land, that that they would not go for. So, and, and that's typically how these people operate. Uh, first, they try to buy you. And, and then they go to the um, stage two, which is the violence.
0: They either subvert you or they destroy you. And when Harrisville, going back to the world body, when Harrisville kept referring to a quote-unquote future world body, obviously he was referring to the League of Nations, uh, wasn't he? Or the United Nations.
1: Well, yeah, that's right. And that's exactly what came out of World War uh, One, And it was really one of the two major objectives uh, of the First World War is to uh, lay the groundwork for the globalist state and then secondary objective was to to grab Palestine. Um, and then again, also at this time, the alliances, which were later triggered, like dominoes that brought about World War One they were being set into place uh, at this time. The French, the British, the Russians, so on.
0: When did the plot against Germany begin and, and did Bismarck Foresee it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it began pretty much from the establishment of the German Reich, which would have been uh, uh, late 1860s, uh, which grew out of the Franco Prussian War. And it's interesting, now; even establishment historians uh, concede that the Franco Prussian War was Napoleon III's deal. Uh, he started that war, and it was an imperialist uh, adventure. He was the, uh, uh, France was a monarchy again. He was the nephew of uh, the Napoleon, and France was defeated again uh, by Prussia in an alliance of 30 German uh, smaller states. And out of that war, they united, and thus was born the German Reich, which very soon was on its way to becoming a world economic power, yet peaceful. But France always wanted a second shot. uh at, at Germany.
0: At that time, didn't they welcome a lot of the Jews and they prospered and they flourished?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, Bismarck, who was the, the first chancellor of this uh, unified German state, uh, he being the political leader. And then, of course, the emperor was Wilhelm the I. Uh, but, you know, Bismarck was the real mover and shaker. He was the great statesman. And one of the first uh, acts... And, and this was in the first year of the new German Reich, is Bismarck, uh, they Germany extended full citizenship rights to its Jewish population, which made it the only European country, the first to do that at the time. That was kind of a revolutionary move. And, and Germany was very tolerant. And for the next uh, 50 or so years, the, the the Jews of Germany lived very well, uh, the the notion of anti-Semitism was something that existed only on the margins of society uh, so everything was cool between the Germans and the Jews and and this is never talked about in the history books and nor is it ever mentioned uh, I mean it, the question is never asked rather what is it that soured this seemingly happy uh, friendship what happened after World War I that caused a reversal of this uh, tolerance and good feeling and good relations, and that's never asked, but it's critical to understanding both world wars, and I, I address it in the Bad War.
0: Let's let's discuss that change of heart because when I read that Germany through Bismarck and the government is the first to to allow or grant citizenship privileges to his Jewish population, even. The Rothschilds, England, uh, with with wasn't Benjamin Disraeli a Jew as well, and they hadn't granted Jewish uh, citizenship to their population. So this is this is something that many people have no idea that could have possibly happened. But that change of heart from being so welcoming, from having so many prosperous people, by the end of the. 1800s, uh, people, you know, they, they, they obtained great degree of influence over German commerce, universities, press, political, arts, and central banking. What changed then?
1: Well, what changed was the Great War, as it was known at the time. We know it as World War I, um, which pitted the alliance of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Turks against uh, England, France, Russia, and then later on, America. Without going too much into detail, people can read the bad war, learn more about it. But that war was imposed upon Germany. They were also innocent of World War I. Uh, But the fact of the matter is Germany was winning the war. Not one square inch of German territory was ever under occupation. And while winning, they uh, continued to propose very generous peace terms to Britain and France, which required nothing of them. And these peace terms were considered seriously, seriously considered uh, in order to end the war. It was at that critical juncture that the. Z-
2: Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe